2: Every magician is a kid at heart. They never grow up. You know The world is very serious and they're all there to escape from the real world. And that's all we do, we provide the absolute escape. I think that's why magic will go on forever. And as long as magic goes on forever, we might as well be a castle.
0: This is Finding Founders a podcast showcasing the vibrant entrepreneurial spirit of Los Angeles and our journey to find the founders responsible. I'm Samuel Donner, and today on the show, we talk to Milt Larson, founder of the famous Magic Castle in Hollywood, Los Angeles.
1: The Magic Castle is an exclusive club run by the Academy of Magical Arts,
0: where only their members and guests are allowed in. Founded in 1963, the Magic Castle looms over Hollywood. That looming presence is something that I've been acutely aware of growing up around Hollywood. So when Milt invited me to the castle for this interview, I was ecstatic. As I walked up to the castle, I was instantly struck by its grandeur. It has a classic Hollywood feel, walking the tightrope between kitschy and magnificent aesthetically the castle reflects the magicians that reside within its walls waiting inside is a labyrinth of trick doors deceptive entrances and showmanship i can personally speak to this floor plan's playful trickery as i traverse the halls looking for Milt, i got lost three separate times and had to call three separate times to be saved from my geographical dyslexia eventually i found my way into his office which doubles as living quarters He lives about 100 feet from the castle in a quaint apartment complex owned by the organization. I walked through a sturdy oak door that opened into a room that had more in common with an eccentric museum than someone's living quarters. There appeared to be a physical manifestation of each year the Magic Castle had survived. Letters lay on his desk, seemingly untouched since they were first penned back in the 60s. Postcards from the 80s were haphazardly filed on a massive dining room table. It was cluttered, but each miscellaneous item was anchored to the charm, magic, and mystery of the Magic Castle itself. This euphony grown out of cacophony felt like it set the stage for Milt's bombastic image. There were these pictures about half a century ago at the spry age of 40, vibrant and practicing the magical arts with the biggest movie stars of the time. Then, I met Milt. I was initially shocked. He was old. Like, super old. But as I looked into his red, watery eyes, I saw the same youthful spark of the larger-than-life man in the posters that adorned each wall. Milt and his castle are a cultural icon. This century-old mansion that Milt restored to host magicians and magic enthusiasts has become world famous. But Milt didn't just come up with the inspiration for the magic castle overnight. It wasn't pure luck that he possessed all the skills necessary to make his dream a reality. He had been primed for this journey pretty much since the day he was born.
2: My uh, mother and father and uh, brother were the Larson family of magicians. And uh, the thing was that uh, Dad was a uh, criminal attorney. At the very end of Prohibition, his clients were really left over from Al Al Capone days. days. Al Capone goes to jail. The federal government strikes its first telling blow at the underworld by convicting public enemy number one on income tax frauds. All was uh, so, and they were wonderful. I mean, nothing crooked about him, but uh, there were a few instances where uh, kind of gang violence and all that. And he didn't feel that was a good way to bring up kids, but he loved magic. So, uh... He just decided to stop practicing law and take the family out on the road as a bunch of magicians. The Dad, of course, was key to the whole thing, but my mother was magic lady on television. She was the first woman to ever do magic on television, and that was for the San Francisco Exposition, and then she went on later to do her own television show. Very much like uh, Wizard of Oz, you know, the hoop skirt and a fairy godmother image, so... I grew up with
0: a fairy godmother, and uh, Dad was a very, very clever magician. Milt's father took a risk. In the midst of the Great Depression, he decided to end his career as a lawyer and turn to something he was passionate about, magic. Let me repeat that. He left his job as a lawyer to become a magician. At a time when so many people were losing their jobs, their homes— Everything. Milt's father decided to leave behind a stable career to focus on a profession that was anything but stable. And he brought his family along every step of the way.
2: I was about six or seven years old when I started actually working with the family. It's these beautiful resorts on the West Coast, mainly. The people that went there didn't want to be seen being entertained. But they were perfectly happy to see uh, Lecture. So my dad invented the uh, lecture, which was a cultural background of magic. These wonderful resort clients loved that. He, he did the magic of the gay 90s and magic of the Orient and magic of the mind and all that stuff. So it was a great show. As kids, Bill and I, my late brother, who was three years older than I, we were basically dressed as uh, page boys and we'd hold trays and we'd bring out a tray with a prop on it and then Dad would do the trick with the prop. It was great. So we enjoyed it. But usually when we do these hotels, one week or two weeks, part of the deal is we'd perform there, get paid for performing, but we also have full hospitality. Bill and I never knew there was a right-hand side of a menu with prices on it. We never cared. You know, we just order anything. It was always part of our hospitality. I think that's where I got my basic love for places that looked like
0: castles. It was a great life. Magic was an integral part of Milt's early life. It dictated everything. What he did during the day, where he would sleep each night after the act, and where he would travel to next was entirely dependent on the family's magical performance. While this childhood was far from conventional, Milt found immense joy in it. From this experience, Milt learned an important lesson that would prove vital throughout his career. That lesson was to follow his passions. After all, if his mother could achieve stardom in the male-dominated field of magic, if his father could build a career as a magician in a time of economic turmoil, why couldn't he? Magic enabled Milt and his family to live in luxurious resorts even when the rest of the world was in a depression. However, the Larson family of traveling magicians couldn't travel forever. Ladies and gentlemen,
2: the President of the United States, Yesterday, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. A big turning point in the that is America, we lived in Pasadena, and when World War II started, the odor of very, very big magic company, the Thayer magic manufacturing company, couldn't make quality magic because all the materials that beautiful mahogany and brass and all that, they were going into the war effort. He was in an age where he just decided that was enough, so he sold the company to my dad. Also, the war affected all this because we couldn't travel anymore. It put an end to a traveling company of magicians. So he bought the Thayer Company, which happened to have a beautiful house in uh, Los Angeles, and they just traded houses. Thayer took our house in Pasadena, and we took his house in Los Angeles. The whole company was the Thayer Studio Magic, and that was in the backyard of our home. I opened a drawer full of magic props and very carefully unwrapped them and read the directions.
0: Even though the Larson family of traveling magicians came to a halt, Milt's childhood remained a magical place. To shelter the family from the depressing reality of World War II, the Larson's moved from Pasadena to a beautiful house in LA with a backyard perfect for fulfilling a magician's wildest dreams. Seemingly, every part of Milt's childhood nurtured his passion for magic and performance. However, upon graduating from high school, Milt's future as a magician was uncertain. There were more conventional paths pulling his attention. Well, at least more conventional than being a traveling magician. I always liked the
2: idea of being a writer, a comedy writer. A friend of mine, a writing partner later, is a Harrison Red Baker. And we had the Baker and Larson joke books. And they came out in the late 40s. They were just small one-liner type books. And we had one called In the Isles And that sold pretty good. We advertised it in billboards. And we were both teenagers.
0: Wait, or this was straight out of a high school?
2: Yeah. I've had the distinction of failing English as a class and publishing a book which I wrote. At any rate, uh, my brother was an excellent student and I was a terrible student. We pursued the uh, writing career, we had started writing uh, radio. We got a couple of good radio jobs, mainly doing audience participation kind of things. So I, I was lucky to finish high school, which <laughs> I did. Later, they honored me as <laughs> one of their prize students. I was, I was anything but at any rate. But the the writing came very naturally. That led into writing for. The best job I ever had, and it was for uh, truth or consequences. Doing that, I started getting interested in producing. I liked the physical end of producing. My dad gave me some wonderful advice one time. He said, if you want to be anything in show business, buy a hardware store. He said, "Just you should have a hardware store because what you're going, you might sell one screenplay and make a lot of money, but it might be a long time till you sell the next one." He said, "People are always going to need paint brushes and hinges and things, so the one will keep you through those lean times. So get yourself a
0: hardware store." Milt continued to develop new skills, focusing on what brought him the most joy. He absorbed the knowledge and advice from those around him, paying particular attention to the musings of his father. And it was in these musings that the idea of the Magic Castle was first conceived.
2: Actually, my dad, uh, in the pages of Genie Magazine, he created the Academy of Magical Arts as just a subscription device, and uh, subscribers would become members of the Academy. He did form it as an organization, but... Uh, unfortunately, he passed away at a very early age. He was only 48 when he passed away. Never developed academy fully. But he at least kind of talked about, I know, one time we were driving down the street and we passed a nightclub that he happened to have a former client that owned it. And uh, he said, you know, they, they have a back room there. Maybe we could do that. Have some kind of a little club there. And do it. That was kind of the seed. And then he passed away and 10 years later, I was a writer for Truth or Consequences, so our offices were across the street by a block or so from the Magic Castle, and I kept looking out the window as a writer, daydreaming, because writers are not allowed to do anything but daydream. I kept thinking about this, because it looked like an old haunted house. It looked like something that was from the Adams family. It was kind of run down, and weeds in the front yard and
0: everything, so Milt's father had dreamed of creating a club that would bring magicians together and preserve the culture and wonder of magic. Unfortunately, he didn't live long enough to see his dream brought to fruition. It just had to be put on the back burner for now as Milt focused on the next step in his journey to becoming a magician, creating his first physical show. My very first
2: stage show was Hocus Pocus 56, and that was at the very famous Carthay Circle Theater in Hollywood. A friend of mine, Ollie Berliner by name, Ollie's family was pretty wealthy and Ollie had money. I said, Ollie, why don't we produce a show? <laughs> the Society of American Magicians provided the magicians and all we did was provide the
0: theater. And how many people end up showing to that first show?
2: Oh, it was not a big success. But, uh, I suppose we had about half a house or something. But, uh, but 600 did, people is a lot of people. And then it was successful enough that we decided to do a second year of it. Later, Ollie Berliner and I we figured out after really doing it about six or seven years that uh, the investment wasn't all that good. And we'd be lucky to break even on all of our shows. We were happy if we paid the expenses because we just wanted to do the shows. And it went on like that for years. Uh, and all the shows got better and better. So then we started doing, instead of one night, we did two nights, and later in 1970s, We got the Variety Arts Theater and started doing our shows
0: in our own theater. Milt's first show was a far cry from a roaring success, but that wasn't important to Milt. They broke even, which means the show could go on. And that was the magic behind the magic. Milt didn't feel like he needed to make millions or even a tangible profit from his early shows. He was having fun and continued to learn practical skills that would prove critical to his eventual success. And over time their audience grew. Milt knew that he had struck a chord. He knew that he had something worth pursuing. Now he had to build upon this foundation to create the legacy that his father had hinted at years ago.
2: Our audiences got bigger and bigger. We were we were selling out our shows. So we proved to ourselves that there's an audience for magic. But The idea was generated because at that time there were not a lot of clubs for magicians. And so uh, we had the idea of maybe doing a, a magic showboat. We even optioned an old ferryboat in San Francisco Bay and we're going to bring it down to Balboa by the time we figured out all the problems of getting a ferryboat. It <laughs> uh, just an awful idea. Then we started looking around and said, well, maybe we could find some kind of a old place. And I got the word from asking around. I said, that that old place up on the hill, it, it looked kind of abandoned as he said, no, the people live there. It's kind of a rooming house. I was told that the guy was absolutely not interested in talking to anybody about anything. He just didn't want to even talk about people that wanted to rent it or lease it because he wanted to do something himself. So. I met a fellow one time, a real estate guy. He said, well, what kind of a place are you looking for? I said, I want this house. He said, I know that house. Why don't you talk to the guy that owns it? And I said, I understand he's some kind of a nut or hermit. or said, won't talk to anybody. Well, he said, I play poker with him about every Wednesday night, (laughs) and he's not a hermit. He just doesn't want anybody doing anything with that property that he's not doing. He said, so why don't you meet him? You guys should get together. So he did, and we did, and the the rest is history.
0: And so you ended up making a deal. Like, Did you get the whole Magic Castle, or did you start with the first floor or something? Oh, yeah.
2: The house was really not in terrible shape, but it was kind of run down. So I told him, Tom Glover, He's the owner. He said, well, what do you have in mind? I said, well, I have in mind maybe doing a bar or a club or something with your own house. He said, that's interesting, but what do you want to do? Lease it or buy it? And I said, honestly, I don't know. Basically, I'm a writer. I have no idea about business or anything else. He said, I happen to be a businessman. And he said, it all starts with how much? <laughs> and he said, you don't have any idea what you're doing, do you? And I said, no, I don't. He had a couple of discussions, whatever. He wanted to install some windows to keep the elements out of his Yabashua restaurant. He's telling me about that. And I said, get in the car, we'll go down to my home. And I'll show you our little theater in the backyard. And I'll show you something that you might be interested in. Okay. I had become quite a fanatic Film fan, so pretending I was a movie theater to the extent of I had a projection room with two 35 millimeter projectors and two 16 millimeter projectors. And our little stage was only 14 feet wide, so I put in a 12 foot wide curved screen with 16 speakers built into the contraption. You press the button and a screen would rise up out of the floor. I took Tom, and he said, that's what I want to do with my windows. Can I ask you how much this mechanism costs? And I said, well, I'll tell you. War Surplus bomb hoist, two of them, and it's a Sears Roebuck quarter-horse motor. The whole mechanism probably cost about two or $300. And he said, Mr. Larson, I've had prices for thousands of dollars for what I'm talking about. And you're telling me you do it for two hundred dollars. We should talk. That opened the door. You got down to the other thing, well, what do you really want to do with this place? I said, Well, it needs restoration. I'm a basically a part-time carpenter. I just like working with that kind of stuff. I like restoration. And he said, Well, here's what we're gonna do. You don't know what you're doing. You either have to pay rent or you have to pay some kind of a deal. You pay reasonable rent or maybe you have a percentage of your business. And I said, well, let's do that. And he said, well, here's the deal. And he gave me the key. And he said, you got the house for a year. You don't have to give me anything. He said, I, I told him at one time, I said, if I had the house, I will make it into a beautiful mansion, floor by floor, I mean, room by room. But you see what I can do, you'd be interested. He said, well, you've got it, do what you can. At the end of a year, we'll make some kind of a deal. So that was it. He gave me the key and I went in and with my saw and hammer and a paintbrush. And I had a lot of friends at NBC and everybody wanted to help on this nutty thing I'm doing. The moonlighters from NBC, the scenic designers and the people coming over after work and working other place. It started very, very small that we're going to have a club, a private club. You have to be a magician or enthusiast. We figured out magicians could never afford a club, but the people that like magic were wealthy so they could afford the club. By the time we opened in 1962, we opened with about 150 members or so, but some of them were people like Cary Grant and Orson Welles. From the Columbia Studios in Hollywood comes an exciting new film triumph. Devil May Care, Cary Grant...
0: And ravishing Rosalind
2: Russell. Let's listen. You know, to it doesn't hurt. People wanted to go where the Cary Grants and Orson Welles would go.
0: Milt had finally achieved the dream that he had been working for his entire life. He was born into a magical family. He had all the right experience. He had the connections. He even had the castle and still he was barely breaking even, but Milt remained steadfast in his dream and in his vision that combined with his opportunistic nature allowed him to continuously improve upon the magic castle. Is there a point where it was hard to keep it going? Like, was there any point where like, you know, you, you struggled um, to keep the magic castle alive?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, all the time. (laughs) Yeah. It's in the early days, we really never made any kind of profit. It was a costly uh, experience. You'd just take the check and dump it in the toilet every week. But in the meantime, we were building a membership. And...
0: But was there ever a moment that you came close to quitting? Because you're very successful with the Magic Castle now. We couldn't there... afford to quit. In
2: the first place, uh, the castle became what it is. Because at that time, in 1963, very strange time for people like me, because... They were tearing down a lot of gorgeous homes to put in 10 freeway going through Millionaire's Row. They had all these big mansions. They were tearing down gorgeous houses. And I'd go in and uh, think the uh, paneling and the chandeliers <laughs> and the stained glass windows think, and things. Uh, and nobody wanted them. The uh, wrecking companies would just go in and bulldoze. Things. And I'd go in and say... Wait, before you do that, can I have that window up there, the chandelier? Oh, yeah, kid, fine, go ahead, take it. I found a a great secret is some of these houses that I knew were going to be torn down. And torn down, they wouldn't try to save things, they just bulldoze them. So I'd go exactly at lunchtime, 12 o'clock, all the workmen would stop working and have their lunch. So I had a little pickup truck, and I'd, I'd say, uh... That window up there on the third floor of that house, it's a really pretty window. Are you going to just bow nose at it and Oh, yeah, could I buy it? He said, Well, you have to find that foreman around here. You know, he, I said, Why don't you guys have lunch? And uh, I'll take the window out and take it, and you don't even have to do anything about it. And then I take a six pack of cerveza, it's a beer. yeah, And uh, I said, you enjoy your lunch, and I take the window. Oh, gracias, gracias.
0: Good person said so they'd help me.
2: <laughs> and so
0: you take the window, and would you put it in the magic castle?
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> bar at the castle, the fancy bar with an inlaid wood top. Mm was the floor of that particular house. So I came back later and made a deal to take anything I wanted from the interior before they tore it down. So I took everything I could get out of my hands.
0: Milt poured every fiber of his being into the castle. At night, he dreamt about what the magic castle could be. And during the day, he made those dreams a reality. He was resourceful and used all of his talents in unison. His carpentry skills were just as important as his card tricks. He could spot the perfect table or window and had the confidence and capability to integrate individual elements into a cohesive thematic structure. The Magic Castle is Milt's life's work, but its influence reaches far beyond Milt. I I think to this day, when
2: people come in and they love what you're doing and tell you how you've made their day by doing whatever you do. Many moments like that that you cherish. I get it all the time, you know, I said, you know, you made my life because I met my wife here. Hello. Now, we got married here because of the castle. Our kids have grown up and these are my grandkids, <laughs> you know, my whole life is because of something you did. Well, that's glorious. That's beautiful. Arlene and I, Arlene, my wife, and I don't have children. We both got married very late in life, so uh, they say, "Well, it's a shame you don't have children." I said, "No, no. You, the castle has five thousand members. I got five thousand kids. Yeah, I got lots of kids."
0: The Magic Castle has become something that is so much larger than you. Oh yeah, and it will. I think it, it it's going to continue on. So. What do you want that legacy to be?
2: As far as the Academy of Magical Arts and the Magic Castle go, it could be here forever now. I don't have any worry about that. All the things that I've built over the years, the stained glass windows and the paneling and the, uh, everything, I've donated to the non-profit Academy of Magic Arts. But the great board of directors, and they're very sincere about keeping the castle going for the next hundred years or so. I think one of these days, the AMAbs might end up owning the place or having a million Year lease, which is be a lot smarter. So it'll be here for a long time. One thing about magic is every magician is a kid at heart. They never grow up. So an old joke was, uh, "I want to be a magician when I grow up," and Daddy says, "If you want to be a magician, you'll never grow up." <laughs> yeah, so. True, and, but that's why it's so popular. It's uh, you know the world is very serious, and uh, you go through our open sesame door, and uh, all of a sudden you're Alice in Wonderland. You go get into a different world, and you stay there all night until we throw you out into the miserable world that you you have to deal with every day. That's why I think a lot of our members are very serious types, like surgeons and lawyers and, and big business. But uh, basically, they're all there to escape from the real world and that's all we do we provide the absolute escape i think that's why magic will go on forever as long as magic goes on forever we might as well be a castle
0: if you want to be a magician you'll never grow up milt's words echoed in my mind as we wrapped up the interview and I packed up my microphones. I felt that I'd lived vicariously through his story. I'd gotten lost in the magic, in his carefree approach to life, in him. He's charismatic and approachable, but he has this aura of mystery about him. I looked around the apartment and I felt compelled to stay. I wanted to look over these ancient letters, ponder the posters on the wall, and uncover the secrets that lay within I wanted to be lost in the magic, but I had an obligation to return to reality. Like many that come to the Magic Castle, my time there was merely a vacation. And now, my time was up. As I walked through the door and gave one last goodbye to Milt, I felt a pang of jealousy. He gets to live this magical life free from worry, and I thought, like, why can't I have that? I tried to rationalize this feeling by saying to myself that the beauty in this experience is its ephemeral nature. Maybe a life saturated with magic becomes less magical. But I didn't really believe that. As we grow up, we rationalize our surroundings and the world becomes more boring, harder, kind of a burden. Reality beats the child out of us. But magic? Magic reminds us that the child is still there. There is a part of each one of us, each one of you, that craves the wonder that was infused in your youth. Milt speaks to our inner child and reminds us that the world is beautiful. We just have to suspend our disbelief and enjoy the show. This episode was a blast to put together, and I want everyone who was part of putting together this episode to tell you what they did. So, without further ado, here's the Finding Founders team. Hi, my name is Adrian Tapia, and I was the lead producer for this episode.
2: Hi, my name is Sophie Davies,
0: and I helped write the script for the voiceover. My name is Charlotte Isidore, and I worked on the editing and helped write the script for the voiceover.
2: Hi, I'm Elizabeth Bowen, and I helped edit and make the voiceover script. Hi, my name is Sharma Shah, and I helped edit and add music.
0: Hey, my name is Luke Riggin, and I edited part of this episode. My name is Sahaj, and I helped edit and find music for this podcast.
2: My name is Maddie Boson, and I helped edit this. Podcast podcast.